0: Hey everybody, come on over to London, it's the Northern Miner Podcast. to episode 101 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner, and I'm coming to you from uh, the theatre district in London, uh, Covent Gardens, and we just wrapped up our Canadian Mining Symposium at uh, Trafalgar Square there at Canada House, and it was a terrific event. We had two strong days there of talks, panel sessions, and... Um, investor presentations. I just got all the audio files, so I'm going to have tons of material for the podcast uh, in the coming weeks. I've had a few uh, audio problems here, so I'm just using some audio uh, workarounds, so hopefully that works. We have so much good material here, I just wanted to get it out as soon as possible. This podcast is sponsored by the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of 16 exploration, development, and mining companies all active in the Yukon and you can check out their website at yukonminingalliance.ca Our second podcast sponsor is the Grasso Group out of Vancouver. That is led by Joe Grosso. They have three uh, early-stage companies, Blue Sky Uranium, Golden Arrow Resources, and Argentina Lithium and Energy, and they're all active in, uh, mostly in Argentina. And uh, you can check out their website at uh, Grossogroup.com and that'll link you to all three companies. Now, we have quite a long interview ahead, and uh, also I'm just basically working off my phone here at an Airbnb, so I'm not going to get into the uh, full market roundup this week, but uh, we'll get into that uh, in future episodes again when we're uh, back at the office. But uh, I just wanted to get this interview out to you as quickly as possible, it's so interesting, and uh, also the BD one, uh, hopefully later. So this is uh, the chairman of Franco-Nevada. Pierre Lassonde, he's been interviewed by our Northern Miner publisher Anthony Vaccaro at the Canadian Mining Symposium uh, just on Tuesday. So here it is the raw uh, interview. Thanks.
1: Okay, everyone, for our next guest, the keynote discussion of today. I don't know where you really begin when you're introducing someone like Pierre (laughs) Lassonde. We can start way back in the 1970s when Pierre started his career with Bechtel. He got bitten by the, the gold investing bug at that time and moved over to Butel Goodman. And it was from there that he met his lifelong partner and friend, Seymour Schulich, and they started up Franco, Nevada with the idea of bringing a gold, a royalty business model into the gold space, which was being done in oil and gas at the time. That career is one that's become one of near legend, I would say. Franco, of course, was sold to Newmont, Pierre went on to run Newmont, left Newmont, restarted Franco. And I think everyone here is well familiar with what Franco has done in the second incarnation. But in our conversation, we'll get into a few of the facts and figures along those lines. Some other little things I'd just like to touch upon. Personally, one of my favorites, I don't know how you feel about it now, because it was in 1993 that you put out the Gold Book. But I can tell you that every reporter at the Northern Miner, when I started there, read the Gold Book, all the new reporters did. So much so that we lost our copy, so I had to go back to Amazon. It's now selling for $100 on Amazon for the Gold Book. So. That's another, even even that seems to, you, you touch go. it, it turns to gold. Uh, member of the Order of Canada in 2002, inducted into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame in 2013. But I know that the, the one that probably must mean the most of you is 1997, the Northern Miners Mining Man of the Year. <laughs> Although you did have to share it with Seymour, so okay. it was 50-50. Um, and then I will touch a little bit upon one last kind of thing on, on Franco. Uh, over the last five years, Franco Nevada's market valuation is up 137%, and gold is actually down 4% in that time period. So those numbers say almost everything we really need to say. Uh, So with that, I'm going to sit down and join Pierre, and we're going to have a a nice conversation.
0: All right. My pleasure.
1: Now, Pierre, I thought that it would be – it is an investment conference, and we will certainly, I promise, get to Pierre's thoughts on gold uh, and other investment opportunities. Um, But I find your personal history – very fascinating, very interesting, and I thought it'd be nice to kind of take people through your journey. Um, I alluded to earlier in the day as well that you're known throughout the industry for having this very positive energy and positive spirit, and I'm wondering where we trace that back to. I know there's a story back when you were growing up in Quebec, you've, you've said that you had so much freedom and There's a story about you being able just to go hitchhiking to the Maritimes when you were 14 years old, yep. and your parents being fine with that. Can you, do you trace back your, the success that you've had, the energy that you have, to those early days, and how did that impact your, your view of the world?
2: I think that my parents would probably be jailed today. Um, but uh, in those days, um, it was still... Uh, more or less after you know the war, when you think about it, 20 years went by, but the world didn't change that much. And uh, yeah, we, we, had, we lived in the countryside and we had all the freedom in the world. So one day I said to my parents, well, me and my buddy, were we, we had 10 bucks in between the two of us and we said, well, we're gonna go visit the Maritime Province. And they said, all right, good luck. And uh, we left for a month. I, I sent two postcards. Uh, there were no telephones, there was nothing in those days you couldn't communicate, so I sent two postcards along the way so they know that I am still alive. And I remember coming back a month later and walking up the stairs to uh, our place and my mom was opening the door and she looked at me and she says, what would you like for dinner? <laughs> it's like, I just left for an hour, okay, and it's been gone for a month. Um, but that freedom uh, is, I think, uh, a great part of uh, what uh, has given me the impetus uh, to discover my passions and to fulfill my passions. Uh, because we were, as kids, allowed to do just about anything we wanted. I mean, you know, like, uh, in French, like, 400 coups. I mean, the stuff that we did, uh, you know, like, we should have been in jail so many times. and But, you know, it was, it was allowed. And I was just saying to... Uh, to John here today. It just reminded me that uh, uh, first time I came to London is exactly this week, 50 years ago. And uh, this week, 50 years ago, and I gotta tell you, it looks a little different. Uh, quite a bit different. I mean, in those days uh, British cuisine was an oxymoron, okay? Uh, and this was all black here, around here. Like, you know, every, every monument was black from soot. Uh, and there was like, hardly any cars on the street. There was no money in Britain in those days, like no money. It, I remember it like if it was yesterday. Uh, those lions that you see in the, in the Trafalgar Square, they were at street level. You could climb over them, climb over anything you wanted. I still have pictures of that actually uh, from those days. Um, A very interesting time. So, I mean, I I started to discover the world, and then the more I saw, the more I wanted to see the world, and since then I've been to 104 countries. Uh, So that was the first, but it was by far not the last.
1: And that kind of boundless spirit that you're Mm -hmm. describing now doesn't always fit in an academic study. And although you have know, impeccable education, uh, Ecole Polytechnique, you did an MBA at the University of Utah, but you, you've said that you weren't the typical good student, the kind of nose in the book guy. That wasn't you. You had leadership qualities, you, had, you mm-hmm. had a good time. And yet now with all this success, a great deal of your energy, a great deal of your donations flows back into academia. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship to academia and how it did or did not shape into your
0: career?
2: Yeah, very much so. I mean, Polytechnique was a means to an end. I mean, I didn't really want to become an engineer per se. What I really wanted to do was uh, be an entrepreneur, create my own uh, business and uh, be my own boss. I mean, from the very, very early age, that's really what I wanted to do. Uh, So, uh, engineering, all I try to do is like get a C plus, get by, okay, do enough. But at the same time, I was president of my class, president of the IEEE. I organized all the parties. I was really good at that, okay? I mean, you know, I had a great following, and every year I got reelected. okay? Because, like, you know, and that's the most important thing. Uh, and I, I even toyed with the idea of politics, but uh, no. Uh, and um, but when I got to my MBA, I found my passion. There, I you know really worked my tail off, and actually finished second uh, in my graduating class because I loved what I was doing, and it was uh, something that I was passionate about. Um, so then I started to work for Bechtel in the construction business. And uh, the uh, first job I got on was actually building a mine. And that's when I started to discover the mining business because you know, coming from the farming country, I didn't know anything about mining. Um, and um, so I started to buy junior mining stock and as luck would have it, the very first one I buy, I made like 10 times my money in a space of about three months and I thought that I was God's gift to finance, okay? Like this is it, okay? Like I found my passion. And uh, it did turn me around. Uh, That was the the bug that really bit me. And then after that, like, I was, okay, I got to learn more. I got to do more. Although, I mean, that's a a story that a
1: lot of people maybe in this audience would share as well. Unfortunately, in the last four or five years, those stories have been harder to come by. Finding those really exciting junior opportunities. How important is that to our industry, like on that grassroots level? Is that the lifeblood, and is that what we're lacking right now? Stephen deyoung spoke about needing that big success.
2: Well, if you, if you go back uh, in uh, history, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, uh, more than half of all discoveries are made by juniors. have been made by junior corporation, and in some years, it's close to 80%. Uh, so the uh, juniors are the lifeblood of the industry, and uh you're right over the past seven eight years um the risk money has not been there for them to fund and they've had a, a tremendous uh, difficult time to um uh, to, to emerge and be what they should be like the lifeblood of the industry uh but you know what this is my seventh cycle i'm optimist it's going to come back again i mean you know it's just like Think of the McDonald's arches, okay? Like, just add three more and that's what it is, okay? Like, is, don't worry about it, it's got to come back.
1: And every time it's down, I'm sure there's always new theories as to why this time it's different. Uh, what gets talked uh, a lot now is that even you know, outside of the commodity price, the drag on commodity prices, there does seem to be a bit of a bifurcation in investor attitudes, a move towards passive investing, mm-hmm. away from active investing. Uh, which could be hurting junior mining stocks. So rather than buying a particular mining stock, investors are maybe buying an index. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of a threat is this to the junior mining companies? Is this a temporary thing? What What is your read on that situation?
2: Well, I think after the 2008 uh, financial crisis, a lot of investors, uh, specifically of uh, my generation, look at uh, like the runway in front of them and says, well, gee, you know, like, I... I I don't have another 30, 40 years to make up the losses that I've suffered and, you know, so I'm off, like a risk off. And they just took their chips off the table and they swore like I'd never touch another one of those again. And uh, obviously they haven't. Uh, instead they may have dabbled into cannabis or blockchain or cobalt or like every other little thing that's popping up. but. You know, gold. Like, if you look at the price of gold over the last five years, it's actually, in fact, it's it has done a V. But it, if you just want to average it out, it's more like flat. And so it's been dull. And people are, if I'm going to speculate, I'm going to do it somewhere else. Um, the uh, I think that the ETF has taken away from uh, the uh, probably larger companies. Uh, the uh, investors, I've said, I want risk off, and one way to do it is to just to put my money into a gold ETF, and um, that way I don't have to worry about a thing. Or the royalty companies, which is sort of in between um, the you know the producers and the uh, the gold. As for the juniors, the ETF, um, it's I think I'm not sure that it's going to be as good a draw as it can because. Discoveries are singular, okay? So if uh, Steve De Jong here makes a discovery, well, you know, as a shareholder, you're gonna benefit immensely. Uh, but if you're in an ETF, you're not gonna, even if his stock is in the ETF, you're not gonna benefit that much. So I think that that old um, prospector instinct that people have, or gambler instinct, it will come back, and you will see uh, the, uh, the junior market revive. Again, it's typical, at the, at the bottom of the market, uh, capital is always absent from the industry, and at the top of the market, there's always way too much capital for the size of our business. Mm-hmm. I mean, the gold business is not a huge business, it shouldn't have the kinds of tens of billions of dollars that flow into it at the top, and then at the bottom, the money flows out, but that's the cycle that we live through. Mm-hmm. So when you, so last fall,
1: um, there was a lot of buzz around, I believe it was the Paulson company report that came out that mining, we're in this mess because mining management put us here and we deserve it and we need to, uh, to change all this. I mean, not only your experience and seeing a lot of mining management, but your role at Franco Nevada, it's tied to, in some ways, investing, well in some ways, purely in investing in mining company management. Is there a problem with the industry, with the management from your perspective? Did you put much stock when that report came out and people were reacting to it?
2: You know, is the mining industry management uh, worse than the uh, oil and gas or the paper industry or the other industry? No, not at all. I don't buy that for a second. I mean, I look at the write-offs that the oil industry does every, like, six, seven years, and it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. So, I mean, compared to them, we're no different. you know, and then again, look at who's talking. I mean, you know, like, Bolson was investing in a lot, a lot of money in the industry at the top, and then, like, you know, uh, the cycle turns around, and he's at the bottom, and says, oh, my God, I made a mistake. Well, yeah, you, you know, like, but don't blame it on management. You knew what you were buying, and it's part of it, you know. If you want to make money, try to invest at the bottom of the cycle when nobody wants to invest, and then at the top you know get out because there will be too much money every cycle is the same yes not everybody does it as well as you you make it sound easy let's
1: let's sorry go ahead that,
2: well the, to be contrarian is not easy yeah. it's not easy to be there when everybody is like heading to the door and then like you know head to the door when everybody's coming in it's not easy my partner Seymour was the best at it okay When everybody was in misery, he loved it. He's just like, you know, this is great, Pierre, like, great. And then when everybody was euphoric, like, oh, something bad's going to happen. Something bad's (laughs) going to happen. So, like, enjoy. No, 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 no. it's bad. Not bad, it's great. But he was the best at buying, and he was always too early selling, but he always made a lot of money. (laughs) Well,
1: it's been one of the most important, probably, relationships in corporate Canadian history in the last 50 years anyway. Yours mm-hmm. and, and Seymour's. So I would, I'm glad you brought it up and I would like to touch on it a little bit more. Uh, Time to just help the, uh, the crowd understand the dynamic between the two of you. I mean, outside I can tell you the, the perception a lot is, is that, that Seymour was kind of the conservative and you were the optimist. Um, but sometimes those are too simplistic of terms when people try to understand things. What is your take on this, the dynamic in your relationship and how it fueled such success?
2: Um, well, first of all, you have to understand that uh, we our partnership was strictly a handshake. And the handshake was um, any decision had to be agreed by the two of us. Um, so otherwise, it would not get done. So if, if I wanted to do something, he had to agree with me or vice versa. And it was just a handshake, but something that we both respected. And of course, we're very, very different in personality. So you're you're quite right, uh, Anthony. I mean, I'm the I, I, you know optimist, I, I guess more visionary. like I mean, I, I look at what things can be and and how, you know like uh, we can maybe uh, do things that don't exist anymore. I like to look at alternatives. I'm very creative from that perspective. And Seymour is very much, uh, the uh, the realist uh, doer, okay, like, you know, he's the, the, so whatever idea I would come up with, I'd stop at his office, like, Seymour, I just got a great idea. Well, if I said white, first thing he did, he said black. <laughs> oh, no, on this that'll never work, you know, like, and I'd say, okay, fine. And I'd go to my office, and then, like, you know, four hours later he would come in and, you know, that idea, like, you know, well, if you did this, this and that and that, it might work, okay? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Well, but then what about this? Oh, no, no, that won't work. And then the next day he'd come up, Lasson, I got a great idea. This is what we're going to do. And that was the idea that I had in the first place, okay? And, uh, but then by that time we'd massaged it to something that was different and it always came out better than the original idea and that's really how we work together. So when you found that first two million dollar
1: royalty for sale on GoldStrike which for our audience has already yielded over a billion dollars in cash flow and still has another 15 years to go but was purchased
2: for two million, was that you saying to Seymour we need to buy this? Well actually so the whole story of uh, the royalty business is, is interesting because The original company, Franco Nevada, was created simply for Seymour and I to be able to go ski and play poker in Nevada and being able to write (laughs) the trip against our taxes. Okay? (laughs) This is off the record, by the way. (laughs) That's the plain reality, okay? Uh, And and then we raised $2 million, most of which was our own money, but then like a lot of friends' uh, money, and we said, well, what the heck are we going to do with the money now? Okay, like, you know, we had a problem. And so the first year and a half, we participated in a bunch of uh, exploration, you know, program that, of course, all turned to zero. And then I was writing the annual report, and I went to Seymour's office, and I said, Seymour, like, all I have to do, that, all I have to say to the shareholders, I'm losing their money. And you and I are the biggest shareholder, and we're the biggest dummies. Like, you know. So we we started sort of a brainstorming session right there in his office about like well what else we can do in this business that's different and he being from the oil and gas business at one point just said like he just floated it off he said well in the oil and gas business there are royalties like aren't there any in the mining business and I started to think and I was aware of a couple of royalties but not like you know dozens and dozens so we after circling back uh, you know, an hour or so later we said well let's try to buy one or two royalties So at least we'll get cash flow so we can stay alive and we don't have to dilute ourselves all the time and you know sounded like a, something so a month later I'm in Nevada and um, my geo asked he said well what else are you guys looking for so I said well we're looking for royalties if you ever see one give us a call um, and during that period, I had just completed a study. I mean, luck is preparation meeting opportunity. Uh, so I had just completed a study for Seymour and I. Um, I'd gone through all of the annual reports of every mining company, and I was trying to find where is the cheapest ounce of gold? Where do you, Where is the place on the planet that, that is, the, for a geologist, the cheapest ounce of gold that you can find and it happened to be in the Carlin trend in Nevada in those days and it was like $6 7 dollars 25 the average was 12.50 and Canada was like $54 so i said see more that's where we want to be the, you know in the carlin trend so anyway 3 months later this geologist is in his office reading the Reno Gazette on a friday morning and on page 3 there's a box ad royalty for sale with a phone number in texas so the guy calls up and he said, yeah, I got a royalty. Where is it? Carlin Trent. Oh, very interested. Could you send me your maps or where it is? So then he calls me up. He says, Pierre, I think I got your first royalty. Where is it? Carlin Trent. Oh, I'm very interested. Uh, So we got all the details over the, uh, the, the, you know, those were the days where the thermal fax paper, like, you know, things comes out and then it, you know, like dissipates in like two days. You got to, it's like, you got to read it fast. (laughs) Uh, And So we did all our work and then I told the guy, I said, tell the seller to meet me in Salt Lake City on Monday morning. So I fly to Salt Lake City, sit down with the guy and I had in my mind thought like, the most I can offer this guy is a million dollars. Um, and here's why, that kind of thing. So we started the conversation, half a million, no. You know, so slowly I raised my offer to a million dollars, no. Then I was like, okay, well maybe I'll throw some Franco stock at me. My, the stock was 65 cents, but it wasn't worth more than about 20 cents by then. <laughs> so I said, well, I'll give you a million shares of Franco. No. Well, what about two million shares? No. And then he started to tell me that um, he had a bank loan, and the bank loan was $2 million. The bank had called the loan. He had 90 days to repay, or the bank was going to put him into bankruptcy. Well, now it was like, holy cow. All right, it's the, the, the bogey is $2 million. Otherwise, it goes into a bankruptcy court. And then what happens in bank? Can I control that? No. So I kept thinking to myself, listen, whatever price you pay today, you know that in five years' time it will be wrong. The question that you have to answer to yourself, are you going to be wrong on the upside or the downside? That is the question. And uh, so after thinking about it, I said, okay, $2 million, you got a deal, but I got to call my partner. So I called Seymour. I said, Seymour, I have good news and I have bad news. He says, well, give me the good news. I said, well, we bought our first royalty, and I said, honestly, I said, I think we're going to make five times our money. He said, "Lasson, that's fabulous. That's great. What's the bad news? I said, we got no more money. <laughs> <laughs> that was the entire amount we had in our treasury. It was 2050000 I was rolling the dice on the entire amount of money, and for, like, Ten minutes, I had to hold the phone up here. LaSalle, are you crazy (laughs) son of a bitch? He went on and on and on. I said, well, are you done now? Okay, bye. Um, And the story doesn't end there because, again, so I said to the guy, I said, look, our lawyers are just two floors down below. Why don't you and I go down, dictate the terms to the lawyers while they prepare the papers. We go have a great lunch. We'll have a bottle of wine. We come back. We sign the papers. It's all done. We do exactly that the seller goes back to his office, and as he walked to his office, the operator of the property is on his doorstep with his checkbook, and he was there to buy the royalty. If I had not been there that morning, not seize the day, carpe diem, I mean, boy, if I ever learn about that carpe diem, it was right there, and not get our lawyers to do the paper, sign the paper, we would have never owned that royalty, and then a year and a half later, Barrick came in, bought the operator out, found 50 million ounces of gold. That royalty has paid out over a billion dollars to date, and it's still got 15 years to go. So that was my first deal and my best deal ever, which is the place that part that's regretful. <laughs> <laughs> How can you top How that? Do you top it? Okay. How do you top it? Can't you top
1: it? So let, let's hit a few numbers on that. Connected to that, Franco Nevada, the first incarnation, 36% annualized rate of return over 20 years. Think on that for a second. Then sold to Newmont for 3.2 billion, and, two, and then in 2007 bought back the royalties from Newmont, paid 1.2 billion, and today market caps roughly 8 billion, 16 billion. Oh, my numbers are outdated. 16 a billion. Yeah. Billion. yeah. yeah. Why have investors responded so favorably to the Franco story? And was there a difference in how that message was delivered or what that response was in incarnation one versus
2: the one that we're seeing today? Anthony, I really firmly believe that. And it, it took me probably 10 years to really understand the power of our business model. But the business model that we have at Franco Nevada is, to my mind, the best business model in the world. I mean, there's not a business model that's better than that. And I'll give you just a few numbers to illustrate how incredibly powerful this business model is. And it's based on optionality. Give me free optionality forever, and I'll make you a millionaire. So when we bought back Franco-Nevada that we had sold, the Franco-Nevada that we had sold in, let's say, January 1st, 2008, so we're 10 years now into that, we had 20 million ounces of reserve and about 30 million ounces of resource that we bought back for $1.2 billion. In those 10 years, 19 million ounces of those 20 million ounces have been mined, okay? Okay? If you look at our reserve today for the same package of land, okay, like, you know, since then we've bought, like, a lot more land. The same, same package, what do we have today? 20 million ounces of reserve and about 25 million ounces of resources. And that, without Franco spending one cent in exploration. Not one cent. And that's the power of the business model of Franco Nevada. We have 10 million acres of land that produces, uh, you know, these uh, these ounces, and we have the operators who keep operating, and that is why the stock has performed as it has. And few people understand the powerfulness of this model. I mean, we only have 31 employees. Okay, so. It's all about optionality, and the optionality is on land. I mean, if you have a royalty that's on like, you know, two square inches, you don't have any optionality, okay? If you have optionality on, you know, like a mine site that's like 500 meters square, you don't – the only optionality you're buying possibly is one of price, Mm -hmm. because the royalty will vary with the price. But the best optionality is land optionality. That one is incredibly powerful. That ties in perfectly to my next question. Um,
1: Because now Franco is also very interested in the oil and gas space, Mm -hmm. which is obviously large parcels of land. Um, you guys have some investment in STAC in the States and mm-hmm. also the Permian Basin. You're look, have you mm-hmm. invested in the Permian Basin at this point? Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk a little bit
2: about your thesis
1: around oil and gas and why that's
2: attractive to you? So we first invested in the oil and gas uh, royalty business back in the 90s. It's, part of, it's been part of Franco-Nevada for like 25 years, 30 years. And uh, we see the oil and gas business as a bit counter-cyclical. Uh, counter-cyclical. Uh, So um, it's uh, and it's also a diversifier Uh, so we say to our shareholders we're going to keep an 80-20 relationship 80% uh, precious metal 20% others and that includes copper and anything else and oil and gas that we may do Uh, right now we're 93% precious metals 7% other mostly oil and gas and um, we see tremendous opportunity right now in uh, particularly the uh, Permian and the Stack. And the reason there is quite simple. It's new technology that's opened up these uh, basin, but uh, these basins are between 3,000 and 7,000 feet thick. Okay, I mean, like in Canada, we think of like 20, 50, 100 meters. There, you're talking up to 7,000 feet of pay zone. And because of um, horizontal drilling technology, two miles out, all the, the, uh, you know, fracking, everything that's come into uh, being over the last 10 years, instead of having uh, the uh, ability to penetrate one of these, uh, you know, this is like a tremendous big lasagna, okay, where they only did like one layer, now you can penetrate like all layers, well, if... We, Franco, pay for uh, royalty on one layer. We get all seven layers as optionality. And so that's what's interesting. There. The it's pull. very, very interesting. So do you ever
1: see that balance of 80-20 shifting
2: going forward, becoming more no. oil and gas? No. No. We, we may end up with like, closer to 20 uh, others, like oil and gas. Um, and, uh, but the uh, mantra is uh, 80% uh, precious metal. And you
1: are, uh, we've highlighted on the success you've had by being a contrarian, and on the uh, something that's been generating a lot of excitement, we're doing a panel on it tomorrow on the battery metals and the whole EV. You are a bit of a contrarian on that. Can you talk to us a bit about your, your feelings around the EV and where that market is at and where it might be going?
2: Well, you know, I I always delight in hearing my um, fellow promoter, Mr. Friedland, talk about uh, the advent of uh, electric cars, uh, and uh, um, but I, when you match that with reality, it's a little different. Uh, just to give you, uh, for example, a bit of a heads up, anybody who lives in an apartment building today, if you buy an electric car, how are you going to recharge it? Because there's no, no single apartment building that has any system to recharge electric cars. So you're going to have to rewire all of the apartment buildings in London, France, New York, Paris, everywhere else. You know how long that's going to take? So while I believe that um, electric vehicles are going to you know, come into being and, and at a maybe faster rate than they are now, it's going to take at least a generation before you get there, simply because the infrastructure is not there for them. It's just going to be... A tremendous amount of infrastructure spending, and in the meantime, the electric car, the uh, the petroleum car, the gas cars are getting even more efficient, um, and uh, they can be balanced with you know electric motors, and they stop. And so, I think that the the penetration itself of pure electric vehicle it's going to be on a longer term than uh, what's predicted. So. We're not going to run out of cobalt. We're definitely not going to run out of lithium, okay? Lithium, there's plenty around the planet. Um, And uh, copper, though, is still the metal that's going to be the best. Copper? Yeah. Why is that? Well, because our world runs on copper. I mean, anything you do, any, you know, electricity. Our world runs on electricity, and it's just going to get even more so. Um, As uh, India develops, as Africa develops, as South America develops, where do you think they're going to get their power? Are they going to have to put up power plants? They're going to have to have wires. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, We just saw a panel
1: on technology and mining. Uh, Disrupt mining has become a very successful event, as Steve has talked about, and it's also become a buzzword. In the industry, there's a lot of uh, focus on that, on disruption. But I wonder from where you sit, um, and maybe tied into uh, your work with academia as well, where's your position on disruption versus knowledge transfer in our industry? We have a lot of people that have a very particular skill set. Are we doing enough to ensure that that's being passed on? Is our bi- I guess what I'm trying to say is, is our bigger issue that we need disruption and innovation, or is it a bigger issue that we need to be able to pass on the wisdom that we've already learned?
2: I I think that we have a lot of very smart, uh, you know, uh, kids in university and and young uh, people. I mean, our industry, uh, in terms of innovation, we do twice as much. We produce twice as much mineral today uh, with half the people uh, that we did 20 years ago. So uh, there's been a a tremendous improvement in productivity uh, at at the mine level. Uh, but when you look at, uh, so you need less people but much better qualified people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need people, you know, kids who go to the best, best schools, uh, who are the equals of uh, any kids who's going to go into the oil or the petroleum industry, whatever. Um, but when you look at the petroleum industry, they have been far more innovative than we have. Now, they usually have a lot more cash flow than the mining industry, so they can, you know, like invest far more. But You look at the whole um, fracking and uh, industry, and that all came into being in the last 10, 15 years. And the productivity in geophysics uh, that was created, like, you know, with the advance of 3D science making everything else, we have nothing like that in the mining industry. And there's a huge gap in in, uh, technology that we have to. Uh, crossover. I mean, back in the 70s, we invented heap leaching, and then, uh, you know, in the early 80s, we went with uh, uh, these uh, great big uh, autoclaving um, systems, uh, so there was some progress into, um, you know, being able to um, attack ores that we couldn't mine before that were not economic. But in the last 25 years, 30 years, it's just been a desert. Like, you know, uh, the drilling is still the same amount of drilling that, you know, we were maybe like half an inch faster, but not a heck of a lot. Uh, in the meantime, we've had like 22 different types of drill bits, but has it changed uh, fundamentally what we're doing? No. Uh, mining, you know, blasting, has it changed fundamentally? No. Uh, so, to me, there's got to be, like, a lot more to come. And uh, the industry itself has to spend more money, has to put their best people on these issues, uh, simply to stay relevant, I think. Are you seeing that happen? Uh, well, there's a lot more cooperation uh, uh, within the industry because everybody recognized the issue, not that they know what to do about it.
1: Right, right.
2: Let's, let's turn to gold. Yep. topic that's
1: be on the top of minds of many people here. My favorite topic. Yeah, you know one or two things about it anyway. I think, uh, Tommy, if we can queue up a couple of slides there, would you like to start with the XAU chart or the Dow chart? Uh, sure. Let's yeah. look at the XAU here. Uh, so what we're looking at here is the ratio of uh, XAU to gold to actual gold bullion. So the valuation of the, 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 gold, equities. the gold the gold equities to the actual hard
2: asset yep. of the gold bullion. Yep. So what's going on here? What does this tell us? Well, I I think that, you know, if a line is pointed downward, that's bad, okay? (laughs) (laughs) So, what we saw, if you go back to, uh, from 84 to 2008, uh, a slow, I guess, deterioration in uh, the value of the gold equities compared to bullion. And you can say, you know, is it part of uh, less discovery um, less return to the shareholders. You, the, the shareholders were not getting the kind of return, so the money started slowly to leave. 2008, the great big recession, uh, and at that point, the ratio fell right out of bed. Uh, and today, we're you know essentially at uh, all-time historical lows in terms of the relationship between the two of them. So I would argue that uh, money has left the uh, system. Money has left the industry big time. Um, It's not being attracted back. Uh, When you look at uh, companies trying to do funding today, uh, where do they get it? They don't get it from the public. They get it from the industry or from industry players. Um, I look at uh, Lundin Gold, for example, they funded 400 million for their project in uh, Ecuador a couple months ago. Where did the money come from? Newcrest, an industry player. Orion an industry player and the London family an industry player there was nothing from the public There's no money available. That's what it's telling you there Uh, So the public is completely absent
1: so it can only get better should we be running and hiding or should we be looking for? An inflection point coming soon.
2: Oh, I think you should be in there both feet I mean, you know like I'm that's what uh, I'm doing with both feet. I mean, I love hearing presentations like we've seen this morning, and then there's the stock is, like, down in the dump. I mean, and like, bring it on, okay? Like, you know, this is sure money. All right? I love it. So, uh, yeah, th- this is bad, but at the same time, is if you're a long-term investor in this industry, this is a, a very good signal. Okay.
1: Tommy, if you can cue the next slide, we're going to now look at the, the Dow to the bullion ratio. Now,
2: this is my all-time favorite chart. Okay.
1: We're going back in time on this one. Uh, well, to 1900.
2: Yeah, 1900. So, for those of you, um, uh, for those of you, I created that chart in 1999. And if you can find a copy of the Franco Nevada 1999 annual report, that's where it came out. Okay. And the reason I did it is because at the time gold was $250 and the Dow was around 12,000 so the ratio was about 42 to 1 and I asked a question in the report at these ratio wouldn't you it takes 42 ounces of gold to buy one unit of the Dow wouldn't you rather own a bit of gold than a unit of the Dow and since then of course it's been coming down so when you look at the ratio over 120 years. What the ratio really is all about, it's about the ratio of financial asset to hard asset over time. And there, there are clearly times where you want to be in financial asset. I mean, you know, from 1980 to 2000, absolutely no question. From 1940, after the war, 47, to 1966, clearly uh, you want to be in financial asset. But there are other times where hard asset you know, do a heck of a lot better. The the part that's interesting about the ratio is that uh, both in 1934 and 1980, the ratio came back to essentially one to one. So in 1980, the gold price was $800, and the Dow was 800, one to one. In 1934, the Dow was 36, and the gold price was 35. So one to one, essentially. Uh, and these two um, were about 46 years apart. So we're now 38 years into the next cycle, long, long-term cycle. Uh, and also, when you look at the, uh, the last cycle from 1966 down to 1974, then it rebounded up to 1976 to, uh, before when, uh, hitting the, the high in 1980. Well, look here. We've had exactly the same thing. From 42, it went down to 6.26 to, six to 4, 6.4 to 1, and now it's back up at 18, and it seems to be starting to roll over. And then the next phase will be the phase, the blowout phase, where it goes to one to one. I mean, that's my view. Okay. The question that you may ask is, well, what's the Dow going to be? I mean, the Dow today is 24,000. Um, in Again, very interesting, in 1929, the Dow was 360. By 1934, it was 36. It lost 90% of its value. Um, and the gold went from $20 to $35. In 1980, very different scenario. The gold actually peaked, at the, the Dow peaked in 1966 at 1,000, went down to 600 by 1972, and then by 1980, it clouded its its way back up to 800 when they reached parity. So in the next phase around, can the Dow be 20% less than it is today? Certainly. Can it be, you know, 50% less? Maybe, I doubt it. But can the gold price be a lot higher than it is today? Absolutely. And that's what I'm betting on. I think that's an excellent note to end it on. All right. My pleasure. Any questions? The next, I would say, if, if I look at, you know, the, the average length of this cycle, sometime between the next three and eight years would be my bet. Yeah. Doesn't make it, you know. It does doesn't make any difference because the the Dow today, you know, has uh, all of the, um, you know, it's got Apple and it's got uh, uh, Amazon and you know those are the big the big disruptor of the industry. So I don't, I'm not sure it's going to make really any big difference. Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: If you see one to one on this ratio in three to eight years, in what world do you think we will live?
2: You know, you could have asked the same question in 1980. It's like, you know, uh, when the gold went from $35 to $800, you could have said, oh, my God, like $800. What kind of world are we going to live in? Um, The same question will apply. I mean, I don't think it's going to stay wherever it is. It's going to stay there for long. Uh, What it means is that there will be a crisis, a crisis of confidence probably in the U.S. dollar because 80% of the value of gold long-term is determined by the U.S. dollar. And what could cause that, Uh, well, uh, very simply put, uh, government debt, uh, private debt. And with government debt, there's only three ways to deal with it. Um, Either you raise taxes, I'm not sure that they are going to do that, you renege on your promises, and or you print money. What do politicians do normally? They go the easy course, print money. And that is probably what it's telling you. You know, that's the way I look at it. it it's worked for 120 years. Actually, it can go back a lot further than that. Uh, but we only stop at 120.
1: So you've got some, uh, Franco-Nevada has some permeated investments. Do you ever see uh, looking at some of the unconventional uh, resource plays in Canada, like Mopi or
2: Nubimane? Um You know, would we look at it possibly? We're focused mostly on oil right now. So, you know, I, so that's why we're down in the state, yeah.
0: Where do you see gold production in a decade or two?
2: Do you do anywhere around peak gold or will we grow further through production? On the gold production, uh, we're at a plateau right now. Last year, this year, next year, it's uh, just roughly 3,400 tonne, plus or minus 25 tonne, so we've we've hit a plateau. Um, the longer the gold price stays where it is right now, the longer the plateau will, uh, will go on and uh, which will set up actually uh, again, uh, you know, if we have uh, an inflation induced uh, gold price rise, it will be very interesting because it could just happen at a time where the uh, production is uh, rolling over. And going down instead of going up. So then you got like the perfect storm, like you know less gold production than you think at the same time as you got like very robust uh, demand. And we are heading in that direction, Uh, but how fast? Not so sure. I mean the miners at 1325 gold are doing okay. Uh, They can you know replace mostly their reserves. They can't really grow, but they can replace reserve and stay about where we are. So I don't see the gold production rolling over off a cliff. I just see it kind of, you know, like bouncing uh, down a little bit at a time, one or 2% for the next sort of like four or five years.
1: We're going to have to uh, leave. Uh, sorry, last one in the back, but that'll have last to one be at it. the back That'll there. have to be it.
2: You know, um, when we started in the business, I thought that the royalty business would no would be no more than four percent of the total value of the business. Uh, but uh, with uh, streaming and uh, you know other variety of royalties that have been created, form of royalties, um, I would say to you that I, w- I probably underestimated the size of the market. Um, if I had to guess today, I would probably be closer to seven uh, to 10 percent, possibly of the entire uh, market capitalization. So I, st- I still think that there's room to grow on the royalty side. And with that, thank you very much for your attention. Pierre, thank you so much. <clears throat> I just want to uh, thank Pierre for
1: flying all the way in from Toronto yesterday uh, to be here, for sharing your wisdom and your outlook on the future. So all Thank right. you very much. Thank you.
0: And That's it for this episode. Uh, thanks for joining us. I'm going to quickly turn around and try to get a second interview up here. This is with uh, Ross Beatty. Uh, it's so interesting. Uh, I'll just try to get it out quickly and then uh, back to our regular schedule. Thanks and see you next time.